All right, friends, I invite you to stand as a gesture of reverence and surrender and respect for the reading of the word. We're back in Mark 12, verses 38 to 44. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue in the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may grab a seat. For those who have been with us for a long time, we're in a verse-by-verse reading and study of the Gospel of Mark. The goal for this is that our whole faith sits on the foundation of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Yet, it's tragic how often we, as Christians, don't slowly let the life, death, and resurrection confront us of Jesus. And so, to walk through, verse by verse, taking breaks where either the gospel runs across one of our core values, like scripture, like we just did, or community, um, or mission, or when it hits something that is kind of an area of confusion or controversy in our culture. So, we're back in Mark for one week, taking a breather for Advent, and then back in Mark again in January. And so, in this particular text... If the emphasis is on watching out for who you trust and follow. As Jesus taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. Teachers of the law, of course, were scribes that were experts in knowledge of the law. And Jesus is saying, watch out for them. Now, earlier in his gospel, he's encountered other teachers of the law, just did earlier in this chapter, who uh, actually had a good sense of what Jesus was after. The one that answered the question of what is the greatest commandment correctly. And Jesus affirmed that he was not far from the kingdom. However, tragically, in that time, just as today, many of those who are teachers of the law are doing and leading in a way that actually could do harm. Now, when I say that teachers of the law can harm, our first experience of that, our first recognition of that might be how they may spiritually abuse people. People in this position can literally do harm to people and in a way that's much more tangible. But the bigger concern in Jesus' mind, the much more insidious kind, is when people you think are leading you in the faith are not leading in a healthy way, not modeling faith well, and therefore lead you down a road of destruction with them. Jesus elsewhere says that people are walking towards a blind man, leads a blind man, they both fall into a pit. That tragically, you think you're being led well, but you are following someone that can lead you into a pit. And it's not lost on me that every challenge that I'm going to have for this uh, sermon should apply the most to me, right? I mean, every time I've got this out to read it this week, like a pit like forms in my stomach, and I'm like, oh, gosh, she's kind of talking about me. So the highest challenge is the people that are in my position that would be so-called experts of the law that devoted their attention to training and learning how to read the scriptures and are leading others to do the same. So there's a big uh, source of tension here. So he's going to give a warning that's going to show a few signs of why these leaders are not good ones to follow and then give a contrast with a surprising faith hero. So this also would relate to our sermon last week, which this verse struck many people. Our youth groups uh, talked about it for a while. Our SFG talked about it for a while. But if you remember last week, we talked about scriptures and how they're meant to transform. And we had this 
cool verse from Timothy. It says, for a time will come, that time is now, any time after Jesus, will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And RSFG had a lot of good conversation about discerning what kind of faith leaders and Bible teachers to follow and being aware of how our own desires can creep in to find people that just satisfy what our core desires is. So there's a lots of that would go on in that discernment process of who you trust and who you follow because it can have big time consequences for our spiritual lives and spiritual health. And so Jesus just gives us some of those discernment uh, things of uh, this story here. So what we see is these particular teachers of the law are self-centered influencers driven by social approval. It says to watch out for them. They like to. That, that verb has a sense of what they take pleasure in what they desire, what, what consumes their longings internally and therefore drives the decisions they do, what drives them. And what you see is they like to, look at what they like. They like to walk around in flowing robes. These flowing robes would normally be reserved for special occasions, but they're choosing to wear them in just normal public outings to draw attention by what they wear, oftentimes associated with wealth and prestige, which we'll come back to. But look at this, they like to be greeted, look, look what they like to, they like to be greeted with respect, they like to have the most important seats, and they like the places of honor, and they like this everywhere they go. If they go in the marketplace, in the public square where public events are happening, they want it there. If they go to worship at the synagogue, they want it there. If they go to eat in the house, they like it there. Everywhere they go, they are after accumulating people's attention. They want attention on them and approval on them. They dress in that way, and when they go out, they're looking for it. And it doesn't matter if they are going to just public space of a culture. It doesn't matter if they're just going forward to, to worship. It doesn't matter if they're coming to eat at people's houses. They are wanting attention on them, and specifically, they're most concerned with the attention on them from the wealthy. Because the wealthy will be the ones most intrigued by the flowing robes and the ones most capable of hosting the banquets. And so these spiritual leaders are consumed with getting more attention on them. Now, we don't have to look very far to see how this temptation is true in our culture as well. Social media makes it all the more easy where when you're just sitting at your house now, it's not just when I'm going out and about in places, just from the comfort of my home, I can be consumed with wanting attention from other people. And you can start to see if the spiritual leaders are acting this way, it doesn't take long for people that are watching them to think this seems like a good idea for me. If the ones who are teachers of the law do this, then I shall too. And you start to have to imagine what must these people believe about God to feel the need for this unquenchable desire for attention. Most of these kind of problematic behaviors, and you know this too from your own life, are rooted in something not quite sitting right between you and God. Because if you truly believe that the vastness behind all you see and know, the king of the universe genuinely delights in your life, he likes you, he wants you, he loves you, he's committed to you, he's with you, that should theoretically fill us up socially, fill us up relationally, so that in relationship, we don't need extra from other people. We'll take it, but you take it with gratitude, and it's not like an endless bottomless pit that is never quite satisfied. It's one that you can enjoy, relational attention that is give and take, 
But if you believe there's an insecurity there, a lack there, you can't hand, there's never a mountain that you can get satisfied. And so I must, whether I'm going to shop and going to worship and going to eat at people's houses, even alone in my house, I'm consumed by, I need attention from other people. And we're going to see, because it's with wealthy people, we have grave consequences. Self-centeredness that wants this kind of wealth and attention from the wealth harms the poor. It says that these people devour widows' houses, not just eat them, but consume them. This is the same word that's used in Revelation 12 when the apocalyptic dragon wants to eat the woman's child. If you've read Revelation recently, Revelation recently. So these people, because, and you know, it's actually kind of insidious. You don't know, are they really like going right after and targeting the widow? Are they just so self-consumed that you there's no room to pay attention to what happens to the widow. And so they're going about their life that is attention on them. There's never enough resources or attention that can give them enough, and it's usually the poorest of the poor that get the short end of the stick. And in particular, if you worked for the temple, there's kind of money naturally flowing because people are offering sacrifices, but the teachers of the law are kind of, their financial dependence is kind of like mine, where you're depending on the generosity of people. And so it's more likely the case, too, that these people would go town to town and expect people to give them money to teach them, even maybe pressuring the widows to give them money. While they accumulate their wealth towards their long-flowing robes and overindulgence at the banquets, the widows are being harmed and destroyed. And what makes this all the worse is that all of this self-centeredness is cloaked with religiosity and virtue. It says they're teachers of the law, which is no easy task. There's a lot of attention that has to go towards learning the contents of the law. These people probably had the Old Testament memorized. They had it on command. They knew their stuff. They knew about the law really well. And for a show... They demonstrate religious behavior by making lengthy prayers. This for a show is like for a pretense, for a pretext. They have ulterior motives as they pray and teach the law. And so this is the most dangerous kind because it's cloaked with something so positive. So it kind of insidiously deceives them and their onlookers of how awful it is on the inside. And if you've read the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, so much of their challenge toward the religious people, especially the leaders, is how they love to teach the law and to perform religious behaviors all while vacantly not, harm, not loving the poor at all. Like the poor were the harm, and so the prophets were raising up, like, hang on a second, true worship of the Lord, the core of the law teaches ultra concern for the widows, the orphans, the poor. So if they are being neglected then what kind of law are you teaching? And I don't even want your prayers. Amos was one of the first prophets, shepherd, like going about his business and the shepherd out in the hinterlands. And the Lord, man, snatches him up out of there to say, you're going to go preach to the people. And when he preaches, he tells the people that God's ears are hurting from their prayers and religious festivals. Like, please stop filling my ears with this noise. It's annoying me because of how little you are caring for the poor. And so then you start to think, if you, as a person that's not an expert in the law, are being led by people seeking social approval, hurting widows, and accumulating wealth, but they know their stuff really well, 
and they like are impressive preachers and teachers and writers and have good prayers, you then can think there's a way to be really spiritually holy but make excuses to avoid the real sacrifice of helping the poor people. You start to think, as long as it's cloaked with spiritual stuff, I can get away with avoiding the real call. And you start to see, and this, I think this is most tragic in American churches because we are the, like the richest country that's ever existed. There's this weird codependent relationship where the people in my position, and I'm just exposing the temptations here, people in my position, maybe not even meaning to, basically try to cozy up to the socioeconomically advantaged and preach just good enough challenging sermons that make them feel like they're taking faith seriously, but not maybe asking the true hard stuff. And then I scratch your back by filling your spiritual needs without truly harming you, challenging you, disrupting you, and you then give and kind of kick it back. And so then we get preachers that are living large, and people in the congregation can too, and giving patterns can be really low, which we can talk about later on. And so that temptation is not new. It's an ancient one. But I think our culture, with more room for social attention and more money to spare, can especially hide from the true challenge. Because it's easier to call out sin when it's not cloaked with so much spirituality and religion and Bible knowledge and virtue. It's harder to when it's, when it's, when it's cloaked with that kind of stuff. So that's, that's a warning to me. It's like lawyers that know the law really well also often think they're above the law. People that know theology the best can often feel like they're above God. And that's like you should watch out for it. <laughs> Literally watch out. And you can watch out for it at me too. Call it out. I, I would like, that's fine. I think it's healthy long-term to be called out for this stuff. So if I feel challenging to you, this is, I've been sitting in this all week, okay? So it's, it's, it's me wrestling with it. And the Lord takes this very seriously. It says, these men will be punished most severely. I tried to, like, look up the Greek and all kinds of stuff to make this less challenging than it actually is. <laughs> it made it worse, man. <laughs> it really is this bad. And what's scary is, like, if you don't read the Bible much, you're like, oh, man, that's the Old Testament God. He's kind of mean. When actually the Old Testament God is extremely patient and gracious. And you're like, oh, well, the New Testament God is just all about love and kindness. I mean, this is Jesus. He is about love and kindness and that he's saying they will receive a condemnation that is great. Like God watches, and we're imagining, man, Old Testament God, he laid it down. Jesus, too, it's just going to be a delayed justice. So you can watch, and the Psalms will talk about this. It seems like it's going a certain way, but one day there's going to be a flip. And uh, if we take Jesus seriously, we're going to want to be on the right side of that flip. And you, even if you are a wealthy person, you can be on the right side of that flip by participating in what he's after, by chasing after what he's after. Obviously, it's a long-term process. But just to note, this, Jesus will hold us all accountable. It is driven by grace. He's not looking for a way to punish severely. But if you live a life that is neglecting people that he cares about deeply, the most vulnerable who have no recourse but to cry out to him and wait on justice, God is going to give us what we want, which might be not him. Because what he's after is caring for all humans, rich and poor. Anyone made in God's image is cared for him. 
and he's not going to take it lightly if we neglect that. So it's, it is that serious, and if this rubs up against us, this is why we go verse by verse. Because if you just do series all the time, you may try to conveniently avoid when it says you will be punished most severely. But let's let Jesus really challenge us and take it seriously. I don't know the nature of that punishment, but it just I don't want to be on that side of it. So I'm, we better do something about it. So what do we do? We should follow somebody else instead. There's a whole different surprising model of the faith, and it's this widow. Notice, we're going to watch out for self-sacrificial instead of self-centeredness and generosity. When you're tangibly generous with your wealth, that is real-life sacrifice. And so if person who is self-sacrificial and generous is the person to follow, but this generosity is going to be measured in a surprising kind of way. Look at Jesus taking note. He tells us to watch out, and then he's like, I'm going to go sit on this other side of the hill, and I'm going to watch out. He sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he chose to observe and watch the crowd putting their money in the temple treasury. He's looking at, paying attention to giving patterns. When you pay attention to generosity, that may draw you to the kind of people you may want to trust and follow with your spiritual life. And so he's taking note of and observing this, and he's going to note two different kinds of people that might, we might notice if you're paying attention to giving patterns. Check this out. Contrast the generosity of two influencers. First category, many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples, he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasure than all others. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty. So this group, rich, large amounts, out of wealth. They had an abundance. From that abundance, they gave a portion. That portion was a large physical amount of money. That's one category. Jesus says many people were doing this. And we likely would get our next turn by this. You know, we likely, we likely would just like they did too. Notice the other side. But we have a widow with a few pennies, and she gave out of her poverty. So she only had a little bit, and from that, she gave very little amount, quantity-wise. So then, who gave more, and who would we be impressed by? You have rich people that give high quantities of their wealth, or a poor widow giving two pennies from her poverty, and our culture would be more impressed by who? Who gets buildings named after them? Who gets things named after them? Who he has plaques for? It's people that contribute to large amounts. Man, in Cincinnati, there was a guy named Carl Linder. I think he ran UDF, and that brother's name was on everything because he gave a ton of money, and he gave to good stuff. And so we would name it after who gives the most. If you go to the Y, they will have, like, bricks laid out for who gave the most amounts of money. That's who they build statues for. But kingdom economics for Jesus works different. Who gave more? He says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more because she put in everything, all she had to live on. But what I, what I find most interesting is that he chose to say more. Like, that's a quantity uh, word. It's about quantity. It's like it's about who gave the most amounts of money. And Jesus says she gave more, not like her giving was better, higher quality, but in Jesus' way of doing math, he says she gave more. Man, this is challenging to me. This is really challenging to me. And so, how does Jesus measure generosity? It's not how much we give, but how much we have left. And if your heart sinks from that, same. I mean, there's no, because this puts us all on a vanishing horizon of how we measure generosity. 
meaning you can never quite get there. You're never done. Like how we think about our money, you never kind of like set it and forget it. It's never like, okay, just click that thing, give permanently the same amount, and kind of be done paying attention to it. But rather, you recognize that according to this, it's only a couple of verses. If this was all we had in the New Testament giving, that alone would be absolutely challenging. Because it's saying we're always, our standard of measure for how generous we are is not total percentage of money given or total dollar amount given, but what we have left. It says that she gave all she had to live on. She gave her very life, it says. The word for life there is what she gave. She gave her very life. She had nothing left to give. So she becomes the model for what true generosity is because she has so little left. This is why the tie, the 10% thing, it's a great standard as like a starting point. But if you make $10 million and you give away a million, you could, like, that would change most churches' life to have a million dollars float in, no doubt. The actual scale of impact, much higher by the million. But that person has $9 million left. What quite was given up there? They have a lot left. They could give 60% of their income and probably never work again. You know what I mean? Like, just be done. It'd be, be just fine. Not really go without. Versus, let's say you were a blue-collar worker or a teacher who, like, contributes so much to society, carries so much weight and gets paid, like, not enough. Then if you give 10% as a teacher, you will feel that big time. Like, that, you'll count every dollar if you give 10% as a teacher or as a blue-collar worker, like, that is almost too much to give. So that's what I've heard some preachers say, that, like, 10% could be taking advantage of the poorest of the poor, and it could also be kind of the rich devouring widows' houses because they could do, do more. If this feels challenging, it is to me, too. We have two incomes. I own a house. We have two cars. Like, I'm in the camp, too, of, like, this should jolt us a little bit. And how much we have left is the measure, not how much we give. The widow then becomes the leader. The socioeconomically invisible can be spiritual leaders now. Being rich and wealthy looks successful, and that's who people often want to empower and follow. Who sits on the boards at major Christian universities or the biggest Christian churches? People that are really successful businessmen who many times can rock it out. I mean, man, there's some successful businessmen that I know that are like, I, I love them to death. They're virtuous people that have done it well. But it's just interesting that there's oftentimes not looking to like the single mom who's barely making ends meet. Of course, it'd be harder for her to make the meetings because she's working 70 hours a week. But this person, because of this story, can now be seen as like they may be the best models of spiritual leadership. And who we pay attention to to follow is going to affect our own actions. So if you're looking for the widow, like for me, one of the most influential people in my spiritual life was this brother at our, at our old church named Dwayne Rawls. He was a janitor. He had been strung out on crack for 20 years. His mom tried to kill him. She struggled with bipolar mental illness. Dad was nowhere to be found. He, he lived a terribly drug-addicted life and was very hard to get out of it. Has HIV, it was a bad situation. But he was in recovery, and you could tell that brother was desperate for the Lord, and he found a way 
to give like $2 here, $3 there to buy us coffee. But I knew that he felt that. Because at other times when he was down bad, he was like, man, I, don't, I only have $97. I need 105 this week. Like that eight bucks meant a lot to him. So when he gives, and I, he would clean our building and sing hymns at the top of his lungs in the sanctuary. And we almost didn't hire him because of me. I was almost like, yeah, I don't know about doing But he became one of my good friends there and a spiritual leader. But it's this kind of story that jars me up to say, man, who are you looking at? Who's really going to draw you in? Dwayne knew how to pray. Dwayne knew how to pray and knew how to worship and knew how to serve and knew how to give. But you wouldn't see it by dollar amount. If he quit giving, the church would have not had any impact. We had five or six givers that carried the place. A lot of churches are like that. But in terms of personal spiritual leadership, man, he was the draw. And that then wakes you up. If you're surrounded by people like that and look to them, you start to think twice about what you give, what you save, what you have left. You think twice about it. It's like, man, what would Dwayne do if he had this much? It would rock you a little bit. And if it feels like it rocks you a little bit, it should. But you have to think in contrast to what the spiritual leaders, in this case, think about God, maybe not being there for them, and so they have to go out of the way to accumulate and devour to get more and more attention and resources because there's never enough to make up for what God has done. This widow has some kind of confidence, maybe that her despair put her in, that God cared for her, that he was committed to her, she was secure with him, and he loved her. So it robbed the need to hoard even while she was destitute because she knew deep down no matter what could ever happen, even if she was to starve to death, the king's got her. And when one day God rectifies the whole thing, she was going to be on the right side of that. That method of generosity looks to the future that says this life is short. I'm going to give my life to the Lord and trust that he's going to make it happen in the end. Even if that means I starve to death now, he's got me. It's enough. I'm not telling anybody to go on the starvation path, by the way. I'm just noting. And there's no virtue to being poor. That's why I say it can be a form of spiritual leadership. Being just poor is not a virtue. It can be a thing that makes you more aware of what God can do for you, but it is, it is itself not a virtue. The goal is not to be poor. But poor folks have an awareness of their need for God and how he meets it, if they choose to, that then become people that, we, that are drawn to. But tragically, many times poor people are looking to the rich to, to, to shape their values. And I think the church sometimes falsely contributes to that. What if we contributed to empowering the poor and saying, these are the people you look to. They know how to lead us. In, in spiritual ways. So who do we follow? These are some troubling stats that made me concerned. According to nonprofit source, households that make more than 75000 are the least charitable. So that's the opposite of the widow, right? They got more money, they gave less. And Christians today only give 2.5% of their income. During the Great Depression, they gave a higher percentage. So what we see is, statistically, the higher quality of living oftentimes trends toward less generosity. We're like the opposite of the widow, right? So because it's so normalized, spiritual leaders in my shoes want to look wealthy and rich. People are like, oh, that sounds like a good plan. Let's kind of like stretch this back and we keep it going. And we're like, man, this story better puncture that bubble and make us realize what is normal may not be good. Don't look for what's normal as good. Look for the widow and how Jesus measures generosity. This, is a, this should be a jolt. This is a jolt to me, okay? This is a jolt to me. And we don't earn our time with God by being generous. This widow didn't earn it. But it's a reflection of do we grasp the grace of Jesus? 
It's a reflection of, do we, if we're on this path of pursuing this, do we grasp the grace of Jesus that he has given out of his poverty to us that we might become rich? And so two ways to kind of follow the widow of this Christmas season. Normally, we'd have done a uh, redistribute campaign. It's more church-wide and official. We get more offering that we call you to, 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 to give towards us, and we kind of manage that and give towards our mission partners. We are trending toward a surplus this uh, year, which we showed you at the financial update a couple weeks ago, and a lot of that surplus is going to go to our mission partners anyway. And so we don't want to try to accumulate more money as a church, kind of going against this, but to encourage you to give like the widow this Christmas season, to push against the consumeristic tendencies of Christmas season in our culture and instead give. And many times our mission partners, if you give to any of them, they are working with the poor. All of our mission partners are working with the poor. They benefit the most from their, from their ministries. But two that are happening right now, Deer Run Elementary School, we've had a partnership with them for a long time. And our biggest emphasis with them is caring for the teachers because the teachers are caring for the poor every week. And I think that Deer Run in particular has a very high population of Haitian immigrants, like first-generation immigrants that, that are like studying English as a second language now. And as you know, teachers, public school teachers, are, don't just teach. They become like social workers and like second moms and dads, and it's a whole, it's a whole thing. So if we're thinking we care for the teachers, they, they know we got our, their backs, and then they're caring for the students. So we encourage you to do this. So right now our SFGs and youth group are each adopting like a grade of teachers and, and, and compiling Christmas gifts for them. So our SFGs are kind of already doing this, but if you're not in SFG you want to do it anyway, contact Megan or, or I, and we will get you plugged in in a way to give. It's not extreme amounts, but a way to let them know we're thinking about them uh, that the Deer Run Committee has really organized. And the second, Migros Aid, led by Joel Vessel, he's preached here, and he leads Migros Aid and does so much to care for the refugee and immigrant population in our country, or in our, in our city, I mean. And in particular, they're running a campaign this Christmas for rental assistance and laundry support. Most of them do not own laundry machines, have to go to the laundromat, and are not able to do so. So if we're able to accumulate quarters and quarter rolls, that's great. That's oftentimes hard to do. You may want to instead just give online with this convenient QR code, and you can click rental assistance and laundry campaign on the drop-down menu. This is simple to turn money that would be towards you and towards the people closest to you and just giving favors to other rich folks towards people that are in the highest need. We're talking about laundry and rental assistance over accumulation of, of bigger gifts. And now look, this is on the track of this. To give in this way is to turn our attention to the widows of our culture, and that then pulls our hearts that direction. Jesus is about being on a path. I think we sometimes, if you're like me, it's actually a, a theme of rich folks to imagine when you hear a problem that you must solve it immediately in full and be done with it. And so you hear a challenge about sacrificial generosity and think, oh, dear, I need to do that today and be done with it. That's actually the mentality of a rich person that can solve problems fast. But instead, what Jesus calls us to is a process, is a path with him. We did not get our relationship with him by our generosity practices by our socioeconomic status. We get it from him because he took on the greed onto his very body that let it devour him and do the worst to him and raise from the dead. And he then releases his spirit to go into people that say, cry out and say, yes, I need that God to then be turned into 
generous people over time. That is the generosity thing and the larger scope of the fact that Jesus has taken on your sin and forgiven you. He's given you all the resources and attention you would need so you would never have to follow the teachers of the law to need to devour that elsewhere. You get all that you need from God because of the Spirit, because for our sake, as Paul says, he became poor so that we in our poverty could become rich. He gave his whole life up so we could have everything we need in him. And now he invites us on a process of learning to make that a reality with our money and how we see people. So don't hear this through a lens of shame. Oh, gosh, see, I'm greedy. I'm materialistic. I don't give enough. And then, like, you just go isolate. That never leads to transformation. You say, God, let me be drawn in. Let this make me open-handed to be drawn into your spirit that forgives and has mercy and can make it possible for me, my hands, to be opened up to be more generous than now. So how generous I need to be? Probably just more than you currently are. <laughs> you grow a little bit at a time, more than you are, and be on the widow's growth journey where she drags you along more and more to be giving more than, than what you do now. That's the path of Jesus who started giving his life away and it took him to the cross. And we trust that when, he do, when we do follow his lead, he will vindicate us just as he vindicated his son on the last day.